Biz News Power Hour. Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour, where we give you the rational perspective on business news that matters. It's Wednesday, the 6th of October. I'm Stuart Lohman, and you're listening to the Biz News Power Hour. On the show today, we get investment insights from Brenthurst Wealth's Magnus Haystack. My colleague Justin chats to Corian Capital's David Bacher and Equitas CEO Andreas Taverna-Turisan. Nadia chats to Brent Morris from IE Abroad looking at studying offshore. And our partners at the Financial Times look at the Facebook files. But before that, here's my colleague Jared Neves. Bright Rock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Bradrock, the first ever needs-meshed life insurance that changes as your life changes. I'm Jadid Neves and you are the most accessed stories on the BizNews platforms. On our website biznews.com, Paul O'Sullivan on SAA, Digital Vibes and Gupta Fixer Kuban Moodley. National Health Insurance, Here's How It Will Work, and COVID-19 Vaccine Certificate Launches in SA are the most read articles. On BizNews TV on YouTube, yesterday's flash briefing tops the list, followed closely by Paul O'Sullivan on Digital Vibes and the effects of the UK's read list on South African tourism. On BizNews Radio on Spotify, Paul O'Sullivan has proven popular across all BizNews platforms his interview where he discusses digital vibes, SAA, and other topics with Alec Hogg being the most popular podcast. Following closely is yesterday's Power Hour and Stephen Nathan on share buybacks and shareholder activism. I'm Jadid Neves for Biz News. I'm Nadja Swart for Biz News, and here are your news headlines. South Africa's new communications minister said this week's outage of Facebook Inc.'s apps and services is a reminder the government can do more to support the development of local social media platforms. The creation of NASPERS-backed messenger service Mixit was evidence local companies can produce successful technology with the right backing, Kumbudzo Hunchaveni said in a Q&A with reporters on Tuesday. Mixit had 7.4 million monthly active subscribers in 2013, according to consultancy Worldwide Works, but collapsed two years later under competition from the likes of Facebook's WhatsApp. Facebook services, including WhatsApp and Instagram, were down for about six hours on Monday, shutting out many of its 2.7 billion global users. The incident has led to worldwide introspection about the extent businesses and individuals rely on the $1 trillion company, alongside fresh criticism that it has too much power. UPL, an Indian producer of chemicals used in agriculture, will be asked to pay for the establishment of a forum that will keep the public informed about developments relating to a spill of hazardous chemicals in Durban. The so-called multi-stakeholder forum will be set up by the country's environment department and will request that UPL pay for it under the polluter pays principle. UPL has been accused by the department of illegally storing hazardous chemicals that were released into a residential area and a river system after its warehouse in Durban was looted and set ablaze in July in a spate of rioting. A new analysis shows that South Africa is one of only 13 economies producing less now than a decade ago. 
An honest discussion now needs to take place about South Africa's economic policy and the disaster in the manufacturing industry, says economist Mike Schisler. After 16 years of the Industrial Policy Action Plan and as many versions, South African manufacturing has gone nowhere. In the second quarter, the result was that fewer people were employed in the former manufacturing industry than in 1969. And here's my colleague Justin with the Market Report. I'm Joshua Roberts of Biz News, and this is the Market Report. The JSE All Share Index was lower at 63,900. In the currency markets, the rand is weaker against all the major currencies to 15 rand 12 cents to the dollar, 20 rand 52 cents to the pound, and 17 rand 45 cents to the euro. Gold is flat at $1,755 an ounce. A Kruger rand will cost you around 27,500 rand. Brent crude is low at $82.30 a barrel. And the premier cryptocurrency will put you back 820,000 rand. In the financial news, Prudential Investment Manager's CEO Bernard Fick has resigned after almost 14 years with the company, which just last month announced that its UK parent had increased its ownership of the business. Fick has made the decision to take a break from formal employment and will therefore be leaving our company, Prudential Chair Graham Mason said in a statement on Wednesday. CFO Chris Sickle will take over as CEO of the company, which will formally change its name to M&G Investment Southern Africa by the end of the year. This market report was made just for you by Bradrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Today is Wednesday, October 6th, and this is your FT News Briefing. Today, we're going to take you to the Congo Basin Rainforest. Our Africa editor, David Pilling, went there to find out about a radical plan to create value from preserving the rainforest. The problem at the moment is that the forest is really valued at zero. And when you value something at zero, the incentive is to chop it down and turn it into something that is worth something. Plus, private equity groups are snapping up publicly owned companies for more than a pretty penny. But first, a former Facebook employee was on Capitol Hill yesterday to give U.S. lawmakers a damning inside look at the social media company. I'm here today because I believe Facebook's products harm children, stoke division, and weaken our democracy. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. Facebook whistleblower Frances Haugen was in Washington yesterday, and she told U.S. senators that the social media company repeatedly chose to maximize online engagement instead of minimizing harm to users. The FT's Kieran Stacey said Haugen had powerful specifics to back up her point. She described how a bunch of Facebook employees had come to Mark Zuckerberg to suggest that the company might want to tone down some of its algorithms so that, in her words, the platform became less twitchy. It became less likely to promote content heavily because people were interacting with it. And they said, look, we don't have to do this everywhere. We just want to do it in certain countries where there's a real risk of violence. I think she was mentioning at the time Myanmar. And she used that as an example of a broader theme, which is that whenever Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook in general were given the choice, do you want to tone down the virality of what happens on your platforms? Or do you want to keep everything tuned up to the max and thereby absolutely milk every penny of revenue you can out of this platform? They chose the latter. And that was her broader point. And Haugen also had a specific suggestion to lawmakers about regulating Facebook. She said they should focus on the algorithms, not content. 
Facebook, along with other social media companies, enjoys legal protections under something called Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. This means that Facebook, Twitter as well, other platforms can essentially publish other people's content without getting sued. And she said, look, if you, you do want to limit those legal protections, which is something that Congress has talked a lot about, but don't limit it in terms of what content is allowed to be on there. Limit it in terms of what the platform is liable for in terms of its own algorithms. So if Facebook has an algorithm that massively promotes a piece of disinformation, make sure it can be punished legally for that specifically. Target your regulation at its algorithms. Don't try and ban certain types of content. That's the FT's Washington correspondent, Kieran Stacy. You could say private equity firms haven't been shy about paying top dollar for listed companies. According to Refinitiv, PE firms have offered the highest premiums for listed companies in more than two decades. Buyout groups have taken advantage of share prices dented by the pandemic. And in the case of UK companies, Brexit did some denting as well. Some warn of a bubble. One lawyer who's advised private equity firms on deals to take companies private told the FT he's reminded of the pre-financial crisis era when buyers struggled to deliver returns on some high-priced deals. But, he added, buyout groups now have more ways to exit their investments. The Central African nation of Gabon is unusually wealthy. It makes money from oil, But the country is also blessed with another extraordinary natural resource, a huge section of the Congo Basin rainforest known as the Lungs of Africa. It really is a magical place. That's the FT's Africa editor, David Pilling. He recently visited Gabon. The forest was pretty still and quiet. You did hear occasional sounds of monkeys, birds flying overhead chirping, a kind of a background trill. I also saw forest elephants, which appear and then in a second or two just completely disappear. And you wonder how they've managed to hide themselves. But the forest is so thick in parts anyway, that even something the size of an elephant can just really vanish from sight. This thick and intentionally preserved rainforest is the reason Gabon is a net carbon absorber. It absorbs more carbon than it emits. And the country is hoping to capitalize on that with a radical new financial product, a bond whose underlying asset is this forest. But the valuable part isn't timber, but rather carbon credits sold to companies that need to offset their own carbon output. Here's David again. As oil runs down... Gabon's idea is to use really its main natural resource, the forest, as an engine of economic development. The question is how without destroying it. So sustainable forestry, as it's called, is one way. Persuading someone else that it's providing a service, not only in carbon capture, but also in regulating weather systems around Africa. So is that how Gabon came up with this idea to become an environmental leader or or role model? Well, in a sense, yes. What Gabon is saying and what indeed some private companies who are operating in Gabon are saying is, look, here is this ecosystem service. You've got a, a whole biodiverse forest with many ancient trees busily kind of sucking carbon out of the atmosphere and storing that carbon as these trees 
grow. And in kind of Gabon's viewpoints, you know, we can breathe clean air or cleanish air around the world. And part of that is thanks to the second biggest rainforest after the Amazon rainforest, of which Gabon's rainforest is the most intact part. And so what they're saying is this is providing huge functions, not only for Gabon, not only for Africa, but even for the rest of the world. And at the moment, the value that's put on that is minimal. And valuing its well-preserved rainforest is going to be Gabon's big ask when it goes to the COP26 climate conference at the end of the month, right, David? How do they go about determining the value? Well, there is an organization called the Central African Forest Initiative, CAFI. And CAFI has paid Gabon $17 million, not a huge amount of money, but it's the first payment of its kind. The interesting thing is that Gabon is complaining about the methodology because CAFI has actually paid money to other countries that have a much worse record than Gabon of preserving their forests. CAFI says, if you restore your forest, then we will incentivize you to do that. This is funded basically by the Norwegian government. In comparison to many other countries, Gabon's forests really are very much intact. And what they're saying is surely there should be some mechanism to reward us for that. Do you think when they go to COP26, they'll be taken seriously? In a word, no. But that doesn't mean that this is pure fantasy. What I think will happen is that actually this will be taken up by private companies. And there is, in fact, a private company in Gabon called the African Conservation Development Group. They have got a concession to about 3% of Gabon's forest. What they are saying is what we would like to do is to quantify how much carbon we are saving by our stewardship. And we will sell those as carbon credits. And they want to sell them to companies, to airlines, to oil producers, to banks. And what this company is saying is, we have these credits, we can sell them to you, and then we can package up those credits and float them off in a $300 million bond. Now, if they can persuade markets that this is valid, then Gabon could presumably follow in its tracks. David Pilling is the FD's Africa editor. Thanks, David. Thanks very much, Mark. And before we go, a quick mention that the FT's Behind the Money podcast is dropping a new episode today. It's the David and Goliath story of the tiny climate-focused hedge fund that took on ExxonMobil and won. I've included a link to the new episode in our show notes. Make sure you check it out. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. I'm Jasser Roberts of Biz News, and with me for today's Market Insights is Brent Toast Wealth founder Magnus Hastic. A lot of heat coming your and Jean-Pierre Fister's way on social media on the crypto front, Magnus. Do you want to outline your thesis behind crypto not being an investable asset class to promote your clients? Well, hello, Justin. Good afternoon. First of all, I can't do it. I can't recommend it to my clients. It's not a regulated product. And if it goes belly up, um, there goes my business, my reputation, and everything, and my money probably. But so, you know, very clearly, I cannot recommend it as a 
as a product. But I like stirring the pot a little bit. And, you know, I love these reaction from these uh, converted uh, crypto coiners. And, and I like the debate. I mean, where does the value lie in a crypto coin? Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm missing it. Maybe it's in the demand side. The people want to and they do put a value on it. Maybe I'm missing something as opposed to a, an intrinsic value. So we can have a, a, a very wide ranging debate about, you know, fiat currencies and where does value come from and the dollar is in a decline and the pound, etc. So I like stirring these things, but I'm still yet to be convinced that a Bitcoin or any cryptocurrency has intrinsic value as opposed to something like a cow that you can milk or you can slaughter. That to me is a very primitive intrinsic value. I can trade a cow for another cow. I can slaughter it. I can milk it. I can breed with it. I can eat it. I can survive. Crypto coin is based on a lot of stuff which I don't fully understand perhaps. Maybe I'm too old for it. And, and my existing portfolio of asset classes, which have served me well for 50 years, have to me intrinsic value. I can go buy bread, a loaf of bread tomorrow or a, a can of beer or better still a case of beer. And people will give it to me because they also believe in it. And uh, but it's, a, it's, a, it's a very nice debate. It's a very nice debate. I read an interesting article on the destruction of South Africa's manufacturing industry by Brentus consulting economist Mike Schussler this morning. Can you provide further context to that article and why the manufacturing industry in any given country is so important? Well, you know, South Africa used to be in the, in the, in the, in the late 80s, 70s, 90s, was by far the biggest manufacturing country in Africa and was one of the foremost manufacturers in the world in certain industries, mainly because of the gold and the diamond and the coal industry. And many of those industries served the gold industry. They would make the cables and the lift shafts and the components that we used in the gold mining industry. So there is a, a correlation between the rise and the fall of manufacturing. And you can also see it in parts of Joburg, East Rand, West Rand, anything close to the mines, the gold mines, was a high activity with lots and lots, and I'm talking thousands of small to medium scale uh, manufacturing concerns, which primarily serve the mining industry. They've all gone because the mining industry is gone. But we haven't replaced it with um, other big, large scale manufacturing stuff. We, we, we can produce and export stuff, or we should be exporting stuff to Africa. We should be making all their fridges and their microwave ovens and all their their tools and everything, and there's been a, so, so Mike's article very clearly says that if our economy is going to depend on manufacturing going forward, we're in real deep trouble. Our manufacturing as a percentage of GDP has come down from 22% to about 13%. Um, employment levels in these factories are down to uh, levels last seen 30 to 40 years ago. So all around it's a train smash, but your question was, why, in addition to the gold mining decline, the regulatory environment, labor situation, tax, the, the predictable supply of water and electricity, and um, rates and taxes that have increased fairly dramatically. So as a, just to summarize it, where capital is made to be unwelcome, people pack up and go. And that is our big concern, that people are saying, 
South Africa doesn't make us feel welcome anymore. Labor legislation is crazy. Minimum wages, affirmative action, BEE targets. We go somewhere else and we can see it in, in, in those charts that Mike... And, and the big point, part about Mike, he's independent. If he was working for one of the big banks or the large asset management companies, he would never be allowed to write that report or he would never be allowed to publish that report. And because there's no question in my mind that that kind of bad news is and will be suppressed by the mainstream economists and banks because they, they fear upsetting government. No question about it. On to a more positive note, Netflix has been climbing to all-time highs recently on the back of the new release of Squid Game. Squid Game is important not just because it's a big popular new show, but for Netflix, it's a big popular Korean show. It's been driving subscriber growth in jurisdictions that Netflix hasn't been able to penetrate successfully and is top-watched in the U.S. and even South Africa without focusing too much on Netflix or Squid Game itself. How do these American giants keep being at the forefront of innovation and forward thinking time and time again? And is that what makes these FANG-related companies such attractive investment propositions? Well, the Netflix story is, is of course, a, a phenomenal story. I'm actually reading the book on Netflix. And as it so happens, the Netflix chief executive in South Africa is my neighbor. And we've had a long chat about this strategy in South Africa and he's not American. He's a Nigerian guy, grew up in the UK, and is living in South Africa. And I just thought their strategy is quite brilliant. What they've done, and it made a lot of sense, and I've seen many of their productions, which are based in a certain country, whether it's Iceland or Norwegian or Norway or even South Africa. So you have that added, apart from being a great story and a great cast, it also brings in the cultural and historical aspects of many countries that pulls in people from a wider range where uh, as opposed to just an american-based um you know story so i find it fascinating i mean we addicts as far as netflix are concerned and you know just don't laugh i've just finished uh, uh, uh the downton abbey and uh, we're going to now watch uh bridgeton as i believe we're a little bit behind the curve but <laughs> it's just a, it's, it's just an incredible story and how they started from from renting out videos to this this movie on demand, but they've been very clever the way they've rolled it out across the world by 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 pulling in cultures that we normally would not be exposed to, like Korea or Norway or Iceland or, or the Scottish Hebrides. Uh, I find that's quite a, a fascinating strategy to follow. I tend to agree, and it is quality content. Changing topic somewhat, the Hang Seng Index closed at a new low today in Hong Kong. I watched a CNBC clip of the Soros Fund Management CIO saying that China is uninvestable at the moment, which is a similar theme to what you've been saying in the last few weeks. What are the signposts that we need to look out for from the Chinese government in order for that tune to change? Well, we must, fully, we must try and fully understand, and I don't think we do, and I th I've read many comments on this issue from American and British commentators. They're saying they're trying to decipher what the Chinese government is trying to do. And the Chinese government, by and large, is, doesn't, doesn't communicate very well, or maybe that's their deliberate strategy. And I was watching this fascinating interview from a, from a, from a, a guy 
believe it or not, his surname is Magnus. His name is George Magnus from the China Study. I think it's at Oxford University. And that was a fascinating interview that, and he has an expert who's been studying China for 30 to 40 years. And, and, and the message that came across is, you're not, as a Westerner, you're going to battle to understand what China is trying to do because China thinks differently to the West. The strategy is different. Their approach to life and, 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 and the issues is different. So you have to have to put in a Chinese thinking cap to try and understand what is happening in, in China. And to answer your question, what impact will it have on those big tech companies and, and Naspers and Process and Alibaba and, and those companies, which have already had massive, massive impacts in terms of the declines in those in those market cap shares. So when George Soros says Japan or sorry China is uninvestable, he's basically saying we don't understand that market, and best you go there and trade very very carefully, because it's not it's not going to react like a normal westernized democracy capitalist country will do. It'll do utterly utterly strange things, which can have a major impact on 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 the value of your investments. So tread very, very carefully. And uh, I'm not saying it's uninvestable. All markets do create their own opportunities. But don't go make that the mainstay of your long-term economic strategy. You could get burnt very, very badly. I had interesting conversations about executive remuneration with Asif Mohammed and Stephen Nathan yesterday. It's a subject that's gained a lot of traction lately, predominantly because of JSC executives earning big salaries and not performing. What's your stance here? You know, as far as I can recall, you know, Justin, I was a journalist like you 40 years ago for 20 years. And I recall even then it was a big issue, executive remuneration and people would go to um, AGMs of large companies and uh, you'd have one lone guy get up and ask question about remuneration and basically nothing has changed since then. But now there's pressure to make it law that companies will have to publish um, what people get paid and there are pros and cons, but this is a debate that's been raging for 30 to 40 years in, in, in society. Uh, you can find most of that information if you spend hours and hours with, a, with, with an annual report of a listed company, but I don't think that's in the spirit of the legislation. They want it to be very accessible to everybody who cares. The debate is one issue. What it will mean in reality and in practice is another thing. I mean, you can go to any major corporation in the world. If you look at what the top execs in, in the U.S. earn, I mean, relative to the average worker, I just think it's a nonsensical argument to saying there should be a ratio. Uh, we're not in an egalitarian society. I mean, the, 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 the very smart and successful people in the U.S., in, uh, and elsewhere in the world are there for a reason. They have skills and they are smarter than you and I. And that's why they've got there. And they, they, they didn't just happen to be appointed. It's normally a very, very long runway before a guy reaches the top. And again, I stress, they are smarter than you and I. That's why they are what they do. And they get paid. What the quantum should be, you can, you can have debates until the cows come home. But um, it, it's not going to change overnight. Lastly, Sunlam has bought Apps' investment management business. At a high level, what do you make of the transaction? Well, as I tweeted, I mean, not bad for those grey shoot, grey, grey snore, uh, grey moustache guys from Belleville of all places. 
to be the biggest asset manager in the country. So, you know, well done to them. Solomon's always been a, a company that's amazed me, and I know them very well. If you've ever been a financial journalist, you'll know that they've sponsored the Financial Journalist of the Year Award for about 50 years years ago. I mean, if Eric Hogg didn't win all the prizes, <laughs> I won one or two little consolation prizes. But, you know, we all know about Sunlam, and they were this duo Afrikaans life insurance company in Belleville where everybody had to wear a suit and gray shoes and, 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 uh, and a blue tie. And, and how they've broken the mold, and I think it was primarily um, Johan van Sale who broke the mold. They didn't go offshore like Old Mutual did in the late 90s. They said, no, South Africa is our base. And they grew uh, to such an extent, and with this latest takeover, they're now a trillion rand asset management company. And with some of their products, Glacier, etc., and the exposure in India, now lately, they've done exceptionally well. Company under the radar, but but uh, a very very formidable company in their in their space. How does business empower our nation by bringing produce to our tables, giving us technology that connects us, hospitals that care for us, and the tools that shape our cities, and by backing the next generation of business owners. That's why South Africa banks on business, business banks on us. Standard Bank, it can be. Standard Bank is an authorized financial services and registered credit provider. T's and C's apply. I'm Justin Roberts of Biz News, and with me today is Equitas CEO, Andre Taverna-Turisan, Results look really solid. Equitas has proven during this pandemic that there are resilient property funds out there. Where do you think there's most room for improvement in the numbers? Whoa. Most room for improvement in the numbers. Well, I mean, I think, I mean, going forward, I mean, obviously, if we could get a bit of proper proper growth in SA Inc., that would be wonderful. It would make our tenants that much more profitable. Uh, that much more inclined to spend money, to look to upgrade, to look to improve. All those things would be wonderful. Yeah, at the moment, it's uh, especially in SA, it's tough. I mean, in the UK, the guys are spending you know, proper, proper, proper cash in in fitting up and setting up. Uh, you know, if you want to compete with the big boys there, I mean, you've got to you've got to go big. Otherwise, yeah, you won't be around for long. Property valuations within the South Africa portfolio was flat. Without focusing on the entire portfolio, specifically the properties owned within the Waterfall Precinct, did they experience any valuation uplift, given that nodes increased popularity? Um, I think we were quite conservative there. Um, so we, we, we didn't... Um, I think of, of the, we've got nine properties there. I think six of them were externally valued. Um, and um, very, very conservative. I mean, I think we were quite conservative. I mean, there was not much that was up and there was not much that was down. A lot of it was actually very flat, if you like. And we did value 70% of the portfolio externally. So, yeah, I mean, whilst the, the note, I completely agree with you, is, is seriously um, desirable. And I think the attack team has done a phenomenal job in unlocking it all. And, you know, obviously, we're very pleased with the three, three, two buildings and the one building building in construction that we will be going into a 50-50 with uh, in the 
probably in the next couple of weeks we got competition commission approval um i think last week um so so yeah so we very we very um familiar with it but also very very uh, we like it a lot solar plant output capacity was increased more than tenfold compared to the prior period is equitas looking to play its part in this global go green drive or what's the thesis here well the thesis i mean we started it probably about two and a half years ago on the basis that um, we wanted to use the the cost increases that were being pushed through by escom on a year-to-year basis we wanted to use um, use that as a as a way to attract um, quality tenants, if you like. And uh, our our strategy on PV is that that PV is actually given to our clients. So if you are one of our tenants and you're in one of the buildings that does have PV on the roof, you do receive that completely for free. So it is uh, it is it is it is an integral part of the building, which we believe um, to give the benefit of to the tenant. And I think it's. It's um, it's 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 definitely worked. I mean, we've got a lot of very happy clients. Equitas is trading at around fifteen percent premium to its net asset value per share, which is very unusual for a property company. Why do you think this is the case? Well, I you to compare us to our peers, um, you know, the Prologuses, the Segros, the London Metrics, the Tritaxes of this world, to mention a few names that are pretty familiar to South African investors uh we're trading at a at a significant discount i mean they're trading at significantly higher premiums than we are i mean i think the sector if you look at it globally is trading at, at, at substantial premiums because of the desirability of the asset class but also uh, i think the scarcity factor uh is driving rental growth and especially in a in a in a in a market like the uh, like like the uk uh, where there is uh, definitely a, uh, a lack of land that can be developed uh, with these massive boxes. Um, and the consequence of that is that land prices that, that meet the expectation of the, of the tenants are few and far between, which means pricing goes. Building cost is also starting to go in the UK as well. You've got building inflation that's coming through pretty aggressively at the moment. Um, so the consequence of that is you, you're actually seeing significant um, rental growth. So, you know, in South Africa, if we get a bit of um, a bit of growth in the economy, but substantial growth to get us beyond the pre-COVID levels, and and, and we can start pushing on from there. I mean, there's definitely construction inflation with steel prices having moved dramatically this year. Uh, we for the first time, I think, in a couple of years, we're actually seeing some some rental sort of movement should we say which is which is positive i mean obviously we 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 have an expectation that sort of rents do need to move year to year and i think the only the only segment of the property sector in south africa that has seen a little bit of rental growth is the logistics sector growth point has come out in the last few days and said that the office property sector specifically has fundamentally changed that work from home will persist it's always interesting to hear CEOs' opinions on the matter. What's your take on work from home versus the office more traditional setup? Well, I'm a I'm old school. I'm a I'm a I'm a traditional setup kind of guy. So, I mean, I'm of the opinion that that there's certain administrative functions that you can execute from home, and I think the need to maybe be in the office five days a week, maybe that that maybe gets curtailed. 
but there's no question i think if you want to have a career within any organization you know if you're not in the office with your teammates if you're not there discussing strategy not there discussing process not there discussing the future uh, you know i think you might you might not get that expected um, uh what's the right word that expected promotion that that you you might have thought you'd be getting um so yeah i'm i'm a believer that and we we're, we're social beings i mean you know being at home stuck in front of your screen all day i mean it you know i can speak for myself only but for myself i mean i find it extremely depressing so yeah but lastly andrea the opportunities and prospects are you looking more to the uk or south africa those are the two jurisdictions in which you primarily operate yeah well they're the only two jurisdiction jurisdictions we operate in but um we we're looking at both um we 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 believe we've got some exciting stuff that we will be announcing um hopefully before uh, the the calendar years out both in sa and in the uk so you know in our presentation this morning our uk partners presented a couple of deals that are actually almost in legal well one is in legals and one is almost in legals um which we will announce in due course and in south africa we also have a a few very exciting prospects both on acquisition trail and on the development trail to supplement what we've already announced um so you know a 28% loan to value uh, will certainly get used up in the in the not too distant future I'm Joshua Roberts of Business and with me today is Chief Investment Officer of Corian Capital David Bacher Just to give you some background, the Corian Capital Report is an informative summary of fund and asset class performance, which will be able to be located on biznews.com or the Corian website. David, September was a turbulent month for equity markets. The South African market was one of the worst affected, with a lot of fears coming out of China, affecting not only the likes of NASPERS and Process, but also the commodity counters. What caught your eye this month? Sure, Justin. It, it, as you said, it was a tough market. It wasn't just equities; it was really across the board, with very little places to hide. If you're investing in even South African fixed interest assets, you were down more than two percent. Global bonds, you were down more than two percent. Uh, emerging markets, you were down four. And although South Africa, in dollar terms, was down about five percent uh, on the back of weak equity markets and also a weaker currency. It wasn't out of line with international um, markets. So you had the Nasdaq down almost six, S and P down uh, approximately five percent. So it it was very much global fears on on China uh, specifically, with coupled with you know the fear of raising interest rates in the US ten-year uh, bond going from you know, I think it was start of the month probably about one point three, end of the month close to one point five percent. So Fears of increasing interest rates uh, was an additional worry, uh, um, in addition, obviously, to to the China fears. David, you say nowhere to hide. I literally had that in my next question. The last time we chatted about two months ago, we were chatting around the thesis about hedge funds. Maybe that is starting to come to the fore, where hedge funds you do have that capital protection as a result of the fund managers being able to short securities. Whether that be bonds or equity markets, 
Absolutely. I think in South Africa, we are fortunate to have a lot of very successful hedge funds. Um, I think what's nice about hedge fund managers is that they look at the broader market. And what you saw in the South African context is large weights, uh, the biggest shares in the market really being under pressure. But if you look at the South African market and you look at the small caps and the mid caps, those returns and shares have really, I mean, there is a lot of shares that have more than doubled. And what you find in hedge fund managers is they play broader, not only being able to go short, but also have a broader universe and not benchmark cognizance. So we've seen some, uh, we've been looking at the numbers today, quite a lot of hedge fund managers who who were nicely up in what was a, a difficult market per se for the larger caps. As you say, David, global equity, property, local bonds, JSC, all down this month. It was brutal. I saw PSG equity up 4.3% for the month in September, whilst the JSC All Share Index down 3.1%. An incredible performance from an investment house that seems to have turned the corner somewhat. It wasn't so long ago that many financial advisors would have been questioning PSG's performance and their heavy allocation to SA Inc. Sounds like a good turnaround story happening there at PSG. Correct. I think one always has to look uh, a little bit beneath uh, just the return number. So if you look at PSG and also uh, Andrew Vincent from from Klukas Gray, also a very good manager, but they're, they're playing the same universe at the moment. And that has been, as I said, small caps, which have performed really well. Um, and shares that were, you know, were ridiculed uh, a year ago. You know, who would have thought that you want to be invested in SA small caps. And as a result of both those managers uh, having lots of exposure a bit too early in the market, uh, you rewind the clock back um, and investors, a lot of investors lost patience. But if you stayed the course, you would be reaping those benefits. So uh, what's really driven those those houses' returns have been, you know, maybe going against the grain, seeing where value is best offered at the moment, as opposed to what was last year. A lot, of, a lot of fear, a lot of concerns about South Africa, um, where they stuck to their principles uh, and they they followed the their philosophy of looking for shares that over the long term show show value. David, we've spoken in the past about cycles. We've seen growth stocks outperform value stocks for the better part of a decade now, with that trend seemingly continuing unabated. And for the 10 years prior to that, we saw value outperform growth. David, from your experience in the industry, would you say that that specifically illustrates the importance of diversification? A hundred percent. You know, no matter what asset class you look at, what manager, no one performs continuously all the time. And at the end of the day, just like what I said earlier, uh, You've got to go and back your investment philosophy. And as a house at Corian, we believe deeply in valuations. So just because the last five years has shown poor performance, it's got nothing to do with how the next five years is going to, to, to look at. And if you are not an investor who can't take volatility, then the best approach for you know what, what we would recommend is a portfolio that that is diversified so you might not be the number one performing fund over a year or three years uh, but at the same time you, you're not going to have those sharp drawdowns um, and over time if you're just compounding your return slightly above average you ultimately get into the top quartile 
David, I think a lot of young investors have a misguided interpretation of what good returns are, especially coming from the COVID-19 pandemic. We've only seen equity markets go one way, and this is your game. What is a good annual return figure in terms of compounded for 10 to 15 years? What number should we be looking out for? Justin, that's, a, that's such a great question. Your return is linked to what kind of risk you're willing to take. So if you look at uh, the last 100 years in the South African equity market, now the South African equity market has had one of the best real returns. So that's returns after inflation in the world. And you look at that, and that's a real return of 6%. So inflation plus 6%. So you, you, you look at that in today's terms and you're thinking that you know inflation plus 6% gets you to 10%. Now, 10% to some might seem like a, a poor investment return, but it is equivalent to the one of the best performing returns you could have got after inflation in a risky asset across the world. So I do think it is time for people to temper down their return expectations, and, and that's the highest risk asset class equities. And if you go down to bonds, you've got to take off, you know, you're not taking as much risk, so you're probably going to get to inflation plus three and a half, four percent. So I think everything in the long term should be relative to inflation, real terms. And as long as you're compounding your returns at a greater level than the inflation rate, then you're getting welfare. David, cryptocurrencies are becoming a more mainstream asset class. Has there been any thought whether to include cryptos in the Korean report? It's something that we've discussed a lot. Um, we're certainly not experts in, in the crypto uh, world. Um, uh, I was reading quite a lot of reports. You know, we, we can't see the intrinsic value. We can't get our minds around it at the moment. We also think it's very speculative. So we think it's a bit premature to, to be including it into the Korean report at this stage. I'm Justin Roberts of Biz News, and you've been listening to Korean Capital's David Bacher. visited the Biz News Wine Shop yet? If not, go shopping immediately at www.biznewsshop.com for a selection of great wines at just the right price, delivered straight to your door. T's and C's apply. I'm Nadja Swart for Biz News and with me today is Brent Morris, the Managing Director of IE Abroad a company which recently joined forces with Sable to provide international advice to prospective students across South Africa, Zimbabwe, Nigeria, and Uganda. Brett, thanks for your time. So just as by way of introduction, what's your background? Uh, hi there. Yeah, um, my background is education for the last, international education for the last 10 years or so. Um, I used to work out of the UK um, for a couple uh, public institutions out there. Um, I did a bit of work for some US universities as well. Um, and all through this time, uh, within the uh, recruitment uh, side of the business or side of the universities, so recruiting international students who wanted to study abroad. Um, so I did this uh, for these universities, mostly around the African continent, um, which has been, you know, it's been really awesome because I've been able to travel the continent. Um, so, you know, as, as a South African, you don't generally get outside of your, your little country, your little bubble here. Um, and I've been fortunate that I've been to, I think now 15 or 16 African countries and really got a good taste of how the African continent looks and, and the scope of education and the, the desire to, 
to internationalize education, and and I've been fortunate to be able to help that, and it's quite, it's been a it's been a wonderful experience. And tell me more about this partnership with Sable International. Okay, so Sable um, International have always you know they've always been someone a group of companies that have looked to internationalize people. So when we, we started talking about working together, it just kind of made sense because that's exactly what we do. Um, we don't necessarily um, uh, cover all aspects of that, but our, our part of the, the, the journey, uh, it just really kind of crossed over. Our clientele were the same, the people that we were looking at, the people we were speaking to. And I think what they found is they had a lot of their, um, their immigration clients coming to them going, but what about my son, my daughter? What are they going to do? Where are they going to go? Or can I actually immigrate through education? Is there an opportunity to go? Uh, you know, I haven't actually studied that degree or I don't have that skill to get into that country. Um, is there an opportunity for me to go by studying? And they didn't, they didn't know the answers. Um, you know, they, they weren't, they weren't, um, equipped for those answers. So bringing us on board has brought that experience and that, uh, um, you know, that side of the business is now kind of opened up for them by, by bringing our expertise on board. Plus we partner with universities. So our business is based around university partnerships. So we've brought that as well. You know, before in the past, they were, um, having to do these sort of, um, their, uh, what should I say? Their, um, focus to the client was around what they knew as opposed to what the universities wanted them to know. With the partnerships with the universities, we were able to bring exactly what the university does and says in terms of their admissions or their entry requirements. And we can now advise that, uh, it, you know, clearly to the students that they don't do things that they don't need. Um, you know, there's a lot of misinformation out in, in the market at the moment. And I think that's what's where Sable identified that they, they weren't quite equipped in terms of what the, how to, you know, kind of dive, dive through the, the volumes of misinformation around studying abroad. And we've just been able to clear that all up for everyone. And I think that's why the partnership is working so nicely. All right. And did you study abroad? I did, yes. So I was fortunate. Um, although I, I also hold a British passport, I was able to go to the UK to work. But while I was there, I was able to do, to do my master's at Anglia Ruskin University. So I did the international student journey myself. I went on campus as a new kind of international person. Um, and it was definitely daunting. And uh, I wish I had kind of had this hand-holding experience that we offer our students um, when I went. Uh, but it's you know it's also opened up a huge amount of opportunities, and I, I firmly believe that uh, international education not only you know not only do you get the piece of paper and, and the piece of paper and the experience from the degree, but the network that I developed, the people I met, I met people from China, from India, from uh, well, from the USA, from um, Indonesia, you know, from Africa, just just a world wealth of people that I would never have met. And when it comes to doing business, when I want to do business in India now, I, I pick up the phone to my mate who I studied with and I'm like, Hey, you know, let's, let's, I want to get into India. Can you help? I, you know, I don't just phone anyone. I phone the guy I went to university with. So, and I've just seen that, you know, and this is why my passion is so high for this business because I see this with, with students, they go ignorant and green around how the world works and they come back just completely changed and way less, way more open to different cultures. And, and I think that was the big, big thing for me, you know, I just understanding uh, different cultures and how they work together. And even, you know, just the way business is done in different countries, that was huge for me. And I could never have learned that if I hadn't have traveled there and done that myself. 
And further to those benefits, what other main benefits do studying abroad offer? Um, you know, we spoke a little bit about the immigration side of things, and I think that's, uh, you know, I think it's so um, relevant right now for South Africans because we're all kind of looking at options and, you know, is is there option, options outside or um you know what? What? What can I look at as a as a backup? Is is there another alternative to what I'm doing right now? And I and I kind of I bring it down to two things. There's there's the opportunity to to go overseas and to get a job and to work and potentially stay, uh, depending on your circumstances and how you do things. Uh, but there's also the opportunity, and I look at myself as an example. I, I gained the experience in the UK and the USA, and I brought it back, and and I brought it into Africa, and I've I, you know my business has flourished because. I've, I'm, I'm doing things um, sometimes in a way that we never we weren't doing things in the past, and just bringing that that, that experience that they, the way that they worked over there, yeah, has made a huge difference. So I see the opportunity for, from an immigration point of view, um, but there's also the opportunity to come home. And not only that, now I have an international qualification when I, at, at, in South Africa, and that means something. It it, it makes me step above you know apart from everybody else when everybody's going into that you know not that I go for job interviews anymore because I haven't done that for a while but <laughs> but you know I'm still uh, you know the, the the company still profiles me um so when someone looks into who we are it's immediately oh wow you've got a master's at at a, at a UK university well that means something that means you know what you're talking about I might not know what I'm talking about but <laughs> perception is, is is big right yeah. in business mm-hmm. um so and and I and I'm, I'm a salesperson so I sell that I sell the idea when you look at me who am I I'm I'm Brent Morris I studied in the UK I worked in the USA and the U- United Kingdom this is my profile and when I'm building a, a student pro if I was a student this is exactly what I would be selling to them yes you get you learn a, a skill yes you get a qualification but you're building an international global profile and, and it brings it back to, to what we were speaking about with Sable. You know, what, what is their, um, their core company value? It's about internationalizing yourself. And mm. for me, there's no better way to internationalize yourself than to getting that degree because it really mm. does do that. There's so many aspects outside of just the degree, but the people, the, the way you learn to do business, even just working part time in a company over there, uh, teaches you HR principles that we, we don't even dream of doing yet. You know, you have to go on a course to go, to climb the ladders um it, it might seem silly but but there's a reason for all those things and there's a reason why uh they're, they're first world and why they're doing things these ways because it it it, it, it values the employee it values the company and and they doing well based on those certain kind of what we perceive as silly sometimes that make make a make the difference in a company and how much easier is it for someone to immigrate if they've studied at an international university it depends on the country mm-hmm. uh but it's becoming more and more of of a way that you know countries now are identifying it i mean you just the uk as an example again um they left they left europe why did they leave europe because of immigration you know what was the you know what was the elephant in the room it was immigration there was a bunch of financial reasons and they'll list you a whole bunch of reasons but what did it what did it come down to it was it was there was a lot of it was around immigration around immig- immigration into the uk and it was a big factor and now that they've left the EU, they've realized that they need immigration. I think, I think if you, if you hear the politics, it was always, we need immigration, we need immigration, but we need the right kind of immigration. And what's the right kind of immigration? A student who's got a degree, who's qualified, who has the skill we need. You know, Australia has a skills list. If you want to immigrate to Australia, you have to qualify on their skills list. How do you do that? By getting the right qualification. So 
it's very, very important that you do the right qualification in order to get into the right country, to get the right skill to, to, for that country to want you. So yes, immigration is becoming a huge factor. It's, it's big business for these, um, countries at the moment. If you watch Australia and how they, they boom on their, um, uh, in terms of their economies booming, it's all based around immigration. Um, and around bringing the right skills in. Um, look at the USA. The CEO of Google is an Indian um, student, ex-student. The CEO of Microsoft is a student from India. Um, you know, the, like what better examples do we have than two of the biggest companies in the world are guys who went over and studied their MBAs uh, or they, I can't remember exactly what they studied, but I think it was MBAs in the USA and went on to work and run the biggest companies in the world. Um, these are prime examples as to how the right kind of immigration is achieved. Uh, these countries are not looking for uh, low-skilled workers. They're looking for high-skilled workers. And that's where education achieves that goal in every which way. And so one would assume that the tuition at these international universities is significantly higher. But how much higher are we talking than local universities you know, so there's lots of options and we work with over 20 different countries, um, identifying that not everybody can, has the means to go in and study, um, at a U US or UK university and pay in a tuition of, you know, 10 to 20,000 pounds per year, which, you know, can easily equate to around, uh, 400,000 rand in, in tuition, just for tuition. That's not living expenses or any other peripheral cost that might be attached to it. So, so it can be quite costly. And yes, there are scholarships available for the USA in particular. There's a lot of scholarships available around sports, um, around academics, things like that. But even then still, it'll still be 50% off. So you're still looking at $30,000 and now you might pay $15,000. So tuition is a big factor and it's something to, to be considered of when you're looking to study abroad. There are lower, um, lower fee options with the same quality. Um, you, you know, places like Mauritius are offering UK universities. They've got UK university campuses on, on the island offering UK degrees, uh, at a third of the price of the UK. Uh, the cost of living is lower. There's still post-study opportunities. Mauritius is a booming economy. I mean, bar COVID, they've obviously had a little bit of a blip, but you know, once they, once they bounce back, um, the economy really is booming. And they, they, again, they're selling the idea of, of skilled immigration. So if you come and do a degree there, you can qualify for post-study. Places like the UAE. Um, once you're in the UAE, you can study part-time and fund your, help fund your studies. Uh, you can study at, at night and work during the day. So there's lots of opportunities to be able to, um, work around if, um, if you, you're unable to, you know, come up with the big tuitions like the UK or the USA. But the, the realistically, you know, South Africans have been lucky. We have amazing universities in SA that are relatively low cost, um, offering high quality degrees. And, uh, you know, it's now going to, it's going to, it's going to be a big shift for our, our South African students to have to look at studying abroad as an option. And, you know, the, the funny thing about South Africa is we've been protected with this, right? And we're now overwhelming our universities because we don't have enough space for the amount of students we have. So we're, we're having to look at other op opportunities. Uh, but countries like Nigeria, Zimbabwe, Uganda, where else we work, it's just common. If you want to do your degree, you go overseas because there's the local universities don't have the facilities or the capabilities to cope. You know, Nigeria's got 200 million people. They don't have anywhere near the universities to cope with, um, with the volume of students that they have. So students there will pay and they will sacrifice 
uh, we, again, our society doesn't value education the same way they do. They will sacrifice everything to send their kid abroad. We're, we don't quite, um, we've, we've never had that, um, I, I suppose we've been very lucky with the, the amazing education we've had. But, you know, unless we start building lots, lots more universities, what are we going to do? We have to look at alternatives. And just to close off with, are there particular fields of study that would make it more likely for students to get employment abroad once they've finished in those fields? You know, that's a very great question because advisor and me is saying, yes, go do engineering, go do law, go do accounting, go do basic stuff. The um, person in me that wants students to succeed and to be the best that they are will tell you, tell a student to do what they love. That's it for tonight's edition of the Biz News Power Hour. From myself, Stuart Lohman, and the rest of the Biz News team, good night, and we'll see you same time tomorrow. Cheers. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News. <laughs>